Welcome back to Hang Tough as we work through 1 Peter. And of course, we took a break for Resurrection Sunday. So let's get our bearings as we pick up the next section of this. And think about who is writing and what happened on Resurrection Sunday in his life. After that first Resurrection Sunday, Jesus showed himself to all his disciples. He displayed the wounds that he bore. And uh, then sometime after that, it says in John 21, seven of those disciples went fishing. You know the story. Miraculous catch of fish. Uh, He revealed himself again, breakfast on the beach, and that conversation with Peter. And Peter's reassured about the role that he would have to feed my sheep. In response, he becomes a key church leader. And within 30 years, he writes this letter that we've been studying. So here is an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ who was told on that beach what kind of death he would experience. John 21 records Jesus' words saying he would be carried to where he didn't want to go and it was to show what kind of death would glorify God. I wonder how you would react with that sort of information. Peter had lived for 30 years since that conversation on the beach. And here he is writing from Rome where he wants to tell his readers how to live with information that you may not like. He wants his readers to know how to live as God intends when suffering comes to us. And so the situation of this letter of Peter is really important It's a different kind of suffering and trials from what James wrote about. And here it seems Peter's writing about being wronged against when we are used and misused and abused. And so it's about pain. And it deals with corrupt leaders. It deals with cruel masters. And it talks about marital love when you can feel let down or taken for granted. And so that's where we come to in the book at this point. Mentioning cruel masters, I'm making no connection between being asked to do this particular passage. Uh, But some of you are facing those issues. Like Peter, some of you have been told what lies in store in terms of how this life is likely to come to an end. He says, you've been grieved by various trials. But even they refine you to the point of having this living hope that can never fade away. So I'm so thankful for the example that many of you give us about how to live with hope facing difficult circumstances. And some of you feel wronged used, where hurt is coming at you from other people. Tim showed us how to live an extraordinary life 
And in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, there are three ingredients that make our lives distinctive. We are to honor authority, live pure lives, and trust God to bring change. And then, week before Easter, David taught on the second half of chapter 2, where he says what it means to freely submit to the authorities as a posture of submission, which includes honoring everyone, loving believers, fearing God, and honoring the emperor. And he taught about how to live and work in the workplace, which includes avoiding sin and doing good. So we come now to 1 Peter chapter 3, 17 verses. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read it together. And uh, it's this third area of working out life under governments as employees and slaves and now in marriage. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what's right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil.
So speaks God's word. Some of this may apply to your situation in particular ways. But there's a radically counter-cultural view of relationships that has relevance to all of us. And the issues of domination and vulnerability in First Peter are being played out on our news headlines every day. Biggest example of that this year has been the rape trial involving Ulster rugby players. Has any court case ever had so many frequent reports in such lurid detail? And yet the reason is that we're dealing with matters of domination and vulnerability. And, and there's massive issues that remain even after the acquittal. They include opposing views of what's so, what is a so-called culture of entitlement and the solidarity of thousands of people who've been looking for change and made placards saying, I believe her. And with all of these issues raging in our city at the minute, how do we handle this teaching of First Peter? Reading about submission, about silence, about weaker partners, it's difficult. And so I'm praying that God would help all of us to take from this something that will apply to ourselves, but also be a message of hope for those around us. This could be seen as a further attempt by men to preserve privilege. So what should we say as a church seeking to be open to this city and be a blessing in this city about the issues of domination and vulnerability in the home. Peter's teaching here, he's earthing his teaching in these real-life struggles, giving both attitudes and examples to test his strategy of how to live in this broken world of power struggles with hope. Our automatic reaction to such difficulties is often the exercise of our rights. But Peter encourages Christians in positions of weakness to adopt a Christ-like, Calvary Road kind of lifestyle, trusting that God will work through their weakness to bring about changes that glorify his name. And in this passage, there's Three participants and a test. Wives who submit, husbands who respect, and then all of you who bless. And the, the test is that these lifestyles will create curiosity. They will raise questions. So wives who submit. There is suspicion about authority and submission. So let's clear away what this does not say. 
Submission does not mean, and I've listed a, a few things that are very clearly not what is in this passage. It doesn't mean agreeing with everything that your husband says. It doesn't mean not trying to change your husband. You know the old wedding joke, I'll alter him. It doesn't mean that a wife gets her spiritual strength from her husband. First part of the chapter, it's addressing women who, who need to look elsewhere for that. And it doesn't mean acting out of fear. It could be actually that our main problem with authority is that we don't like being told what to do. But of course, also, abusive authority exists. It's part of the effects of living in this world. It's part of the effect of sin that authority gets abused. And so the scandal that we've heard about of clerical child abuse is sinister and a hideous distortion of authority. And also the physical and emotional abuse that takes under, that happens in homes under the guise of authority in the home is utterly wrong. And if you are in an abusive relationship, get help immediately. If your spouse is part of this or any other church, then seek help from the pastoral team. This is serious and it should not be tolerated. But this is not what Peter is talking about here. There's no abuse mentioned. He's addressing wives and particularly those who are married to husbands who are not believers. So what does he mean? Peter's saying at least three things that are good and that are expressions of freedom rather than fear. And the first is that submission is good. Marriage brings a change of allegiance. In first in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, we, we read this in this uh, series uh, of Ephesians. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church submits to Christ, so wives submit in everything to their husbands. So Paul has said wives should submit in just the same way as citizens submit to ruling authorities. And Paul and Peter together are calling for voluntary submission. Nowhere will you find any teaching that says husbands are given the responsibility to ensure that their wives are submitting. And that's really important. But we believe God is good and wise. And just as we accept the hard sayings about putting ourselves under the government, we ought to accept this as good and wise. It's good because it reflects the relationships within the Trinity. 
each person equally God, and yet the Son submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits to the Son and to the Father. And even thinking about Peter writing these words, going back to what we thought about last week, in the lead up to the cross, Jesus uttered these hard words the night before his death, but not my will, your will be done. That's submission at its highest point. And it's good because it's grounded in Christ's relationship with the church. Seen that? Ephesians 5. This voluntary transfer of allegiance shows what it's like to submit to Christ. So submission isn't rooted in who your husband is or how responsibility he is. It isn't rooted in whether or not he's a believer. It's rooted in God's good and wise authority. And for every one of us, we don't lose our freedom when we submit the authority of God. We find it. And there's one important difference between submitting to your husband and submitting to Christ. Your husband isn't God. He will get it wrong. He will make mistakes. So wives, the direction here is put your will under your husband's. Put his will before yours, but not before Christ's. His will comes first. Another message that flies in the face of popular culture is that inner beauty has lasting value. I want to say this isn't an anti-beauty text. So don't worry, I'm not looking around to see who's wearing gold or braiding their hair or what sort of clothes you're wearing. God is the creator of beauty. He loves it. He loves you. And he looks at you and says, very good. And Peter doesn't say that adorning yourself in this way is wrong or sinful. But like lots of other treasures that we can pursue, he says, it's perishable. It doesn't last. We know that. I saw that this morning when I got up and looked in the mirror this morning. And yet, in Peter, there's this growing list of imperishable things. And to that, now he's adding this other element. He adds inner beauty. Verse 4 says, Let your adorning be the inner person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. This is of great worth. So what Peter is forbidding is a preoccupation with outer beauty. And true beauty is inward rather than outward. It's precious rather than expensive. It's unfading 
rather than fading. So what does it look like if it's on the inside? It consists of a gentle and quiet spirit. And gentle means humble as opposed to harsh. Meek is another word for it, and it's used of Jesus, who ushered in his kingdom without harshness or force. And quiet is where the agitation of worry and envy is stilled where you can trust God with things that wind you up. It's not saying you won't be wound up, but there is a challenge of trusting God with those things. And David cultivated this in Psalm 131, saying, my heart isn't proud. My eyes are not haughty. I've stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child within me. And all Christians are told to live a quiet life. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica saying, aspire to live quietly. So here is lasting treasure. If you attract someone with inner beauty, they'll always be attracted to you. It's amazing. And therefore you get 80-year-olds saying to their spouse, you are as beautiful as the day I married you. Why? Not because of the wrinkles, but because of that inner beauty that shines out. You can maintain inner beauty. You can keep it up. Because it doesn't depend on youth or fashion or wealth, they all disappear. They all become old and dowdy and depleted. Have you pulled out the engagement photograph and thought, surely I didn't wear that? Or look back in your old photographs and just recognize something that seemed so out of place today. Beauty that's on the inside isn't like that. And the effectiveness of all of this, and in fact the reason why Peter writes to wives the way he does at the beginning of this chapter, is that unbelieving husbands are not beyond hope. These three ingredients that Peter has applied to governments, to workplaces, and to homes are to honor God, to live pure lives, and trust that God will bring change. And he's saying here, yes, that change is possible. You might have been speaking to your house, your, your spouse about the hope that you have, but what is found in Christ? And you find those conversations just went nowhere. You might have been trying to witness to him in the most winsome way. And yet it just seemed to turn people off completely. And Peter's advice 
is based on the effects of gentle submission, saying that people can be one without words. So, for all of us, if we know somebody in that situation who's concerned about their spouse, then pray for their inner beauty. Pray that they would live beautiful lives that are so compelling, those inner qualities of freedom from fear and willing service to grow will attract unbelieving spouses because unbelieving husbands are not without hope. I want to mention husbands, but husbands get a single verse, so I'm going to keep this brief, but it's still important. And it's about the husband who respects. The husband of the beginning of this chapter was not a Christian, but the assumption in verse 7 is very different. And this is also revolutionary stuff because women, whereas Peter was writing, taken for granted, certainly not regarded as equals. So the attitude here is one of respect for joint heirs in the gracious gift of, your, of life. And your wives, husbands, are equally blessed with all of the guarding and keeping of God's power and generosity. And so this rule of head is not the right to command and control. It is a responsibility to love like Christ and to lay down your life in servant leadership. And it's expressed as being considerate, which many wives would say, not a bad start. And there must be, of course, consideration if there's going to be respect. But a more literal translation of this is to live together with them according to knowledge. And of course that means being considered, but it's much more than just a horizontal relationship or matter. It refers to a husband's knowledge of God. We husbands are to live together with our wives informed by the knowledge of God's will. Same idea was seen in the previous chapter. Chapter 2, verse 19 is living mindful of God being a gracious thing or living together according to knowledge. And here's the sting in the tail. Verse 7, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Nothing hinders your prayers. So much is packed in this short verse. But here's one application. I believe prayer is a barometer of relationship. Verse 12 backs this up. That's an indication of who God is listening to. And if we're being righteous and pure in our relationships, giving ourselves to our wives with all consideration, then our prayers are heard. Janet is in creche 
I didn't ask her to do crash today just uh, because I was speaking on this subject, but that was, that was part of the ruta. But at the end of each day, we aim to conclude the day by praying for family, for your concerns, for rest, for blessing on the next day. What happens when consideration for one another is at a low point? It does occasionally happen that we're not exactly overflowing with love for one another at the end of a day. And there's not much being considerate going on. So what do I do? Often I don't want to talk, never mind pray. And yet in that situation, I need to seek to give a lead in looking to God, in exploring what God's will is for our lives, in being conscious of God. And so it's my job as a husband to turn to God before we sleep. And it's Janet's responsibility to support that. I pray she joins in and hope she doesn't sleep. That's how it works. That's how I see this responsibility being played out. It might be as little as, Lord, help us. We can't work this out. We need you more now than we ever did before. But would you break in? Would you teach us? Would you soften us? Amen. Pull the covers up. Go to sleep. But the point is that God has given each of us different roles within a relationship of equality. Your application of that might be different. But equality still requires submission. So submission is the inclination of the will to support a husband's leadership. And consideration is the willingness to lead a life in holy habits that keep us conscious of God and his will for us. Does all this seem like a million miles from the issues that outrage men and women in our city? Many who feel deeply about the injustices of how men and women relate will not be inclined to believe this word. But Peter would say, live out godly wisdom in your homes as well as your workplaces, in civil society, doing your duty. And you will display a hope that is compelling. That's what we've been singing about, thinking about throughout all of this service. And you might be struggling with some of this. Why has God given these instructions about the role of wives? Part of the answer is to witness to the hope that you have in Christ. And husbands, you might be wrestling what's, with what's expected of you. Part of the answer is to demonstrate respect so that your prayers are heard. Last line, finally, all of you. Verse 8. There's a high calling to bless one another with humility and compassion 
and loving support that demonstrates hope that you have in obeying Christ and how we need that as we're working these things out in our society, in our workplaces, in our homes. We need a place like this where we can love one another in this way and support one another and help one another and listen and be considerate and compassionate. Why? So that our lives display the hope that we have. There's not time to say more. But let me finish with one thing. I was in touch with a member of this church who was preparing to give an answer for the hope that he had following the death of a neighbor just this week. And he said these challenging words. How many times have I ever been asked to explain the reason for the hope that I have recently? Did has anybody ever ask me that question? And that's a question that I'm asking myself and asking us as a church. What kind of submission to the will of God are we demonstrating that causes people to stop and say, your lives are saying something here. Tell us more. 